Good afternoon. Uh, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. Malachi 2, verse 16. This is on page 1106 of your Pew Bibles. I have a, a challenge for you this morning, and that's now that you're warm and fully fed, we're going to read the entire rest of the Old Testament. So, <laughs> Thank you for laughing. <laughs> uh, we've seen previously that God has made two indictments against the Israelites. First, that they bring to him very impure worship as they come before God. And second, that they have behaved as bad ambassadors, uh, that they have brought uh, bad living and bad worship uh, before the Lord. The people have this hollow relationship with God, and they repeatedly respond to him in this very bitter and sarcastic manner every time he questions their actions. And here, uh, they make one more grand and terrible accusation against God, and God has one more indictment against them, and a promise with a very great blessing and a very grave curse, depending on their response. And so, uh, turn with me, and let's read from Malachi 2:17 uh, through the end of the book. Listen and hear the word of the Lord. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness." Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob." Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts, and all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed, for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord listened and heard them. 
So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. And you shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And thus we'll end the reading of God's word. Let us come before him in prayer. God, we do thank you that your word is, uh, is present and is clear and is before our eyes as we come to study it. We pray that you would open up our eyes to the truths uh, that your word beholds, um, to the, the meaning that it has for our lives as well as just like Israel, we seek to live uprightly before you. Uh, please bless our, the preaching and the hearing of your word. In Christ's name we pray. I like to think that in my fourth year of teaching, I've gotten uh, okay at this. Uh, maybe you can uh, be the judge of that, but I'm going to try to teach something that I might have thought impossible. Uh, children, there used to be a thing called a fax machine. <laughs> a machine before you could take your cell phone out and take a picture and send it to somebody when phones were connected to the walls and you couldn't walk around with them. Uh, there was this machine that you could put a paper or a picture in and you had to wait for it to move all the way through the machine and it would send it through a phone line, I guess like texting, uh, over to a recipient on the other end who would take the, the fax, the picture, and be able to look over it. And uh, my dad, every time we, he moved offices, uh, would set up his fax machine in his new office and the same image always came out. I'll have to ask him about this or maybe he'll call me now this week. Uh, and, and he would receive this image where uh, on one hand, if you looked at it and picked it up, it looked like this ugly hag, this witch. Right? And when you spun the picture around the other way, it looked like a beautiful princess. And maybe it says something about my personality, I don't know, but I was always easily, uh, I found it very easy to find the ugly hag in the picture, and I found it very difficult to get the, the beautiful princess uh, on the other side uh, but this is kind of the, the situation that Israel was in in those days. Israel only seemed to see the worst in God. No matter how they turned the picture, they could only see the ugly, terrible side of what God was doing, or so they thought. But if they truly understood who God was and what he was doing in the world, they could have seen nothing more beautiful. They needed the right perspective on God and on his justice because they were deceiving themselves about their own obedience, as we've seen in past uh, passages for this, and what that meant for the final judgment. Well, today, you and I may use phrases like uh, a little white lie, or the ends justify the means, 
or I read an article the other day about personal refreshment and the, the expert, so-called expert, said, I believe in the virtue of selfishness. Right? These are the things that we hear uh, in the media and in our world uh, because you and I often have trouble discerning our understanding of right and wrong from God's understanding of right and wrong. Uh, perhaps we struggle to view the world and the way that it works day in and day out because we just don't see God acting and what we see would be the right way. But the fact is, and what Malachi is teaching, is that you must not trust your own view of right and wrong, especially when it comes to your salvation. And his word to us today is that you might submit yourself to the purifying work of Christ so that you may stand on judgment day. Submit yourself to the purifying work of Christ so that you may stand on judgment day. So the first thing that Malachi would have us know from this passage is that you must recognize that you and I are inclined to a false sense of justice. You must recognize that you and I are inclined to a false sense of justice. We see this at the very opening of today's passage. First, the people declare against God that he seems to have no sense of justice. They say it multiple times even. They say first that evildoers please the Lord. Second, they say that following God is no profit to them. And third, that evildoers prosper and put God to the test. Now, interestingly, this is almost like uh, a child, uh, maybe you find them at the end of the day with some crumbs on their face and you ask them, have you eaten a cookie? And they say, no, I haven't. Well, why are the crumbs on your face? Uh, okay, I ate one. Well, there's four cookies missing here. Okay, I ate four. They keep changing the story when they realize it doesn't hold up. The people at first in chapter 2, verse 17 say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. But by the time in chapter 3 they try to reconcile this, they say God loves evil. Well, no, it's not so much that God loves evil maybe, but he's certainly not going to do anything about it. So they don't have an understanding of God's character that's grounded in the word. They don't understand his justice because they're not going to the Bible to find out who God is. They just want to keep doing what they're doing and make excuses for it. And the fact is, right, the people aren't looking to God and not even looking to his word or to their own history. If we look down at verse 7 of chapter 3, Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? Or you might even uh, phrase this a diff different way. Where have we gone that we need to come back? We've been here all along. Where have you been? So the people don't even look at the law or at their own history. They're robbing God, and he tells them that they're cursed for it. Down in verse 13, your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You've said it's useless to serve God. What profit is it that we've kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? They're robbing God because they don't see a profit in serving the Lord. They want a financial return on investment for serving God. And because God doesn't seem to be paying out, they're rejecting him in his word. And he certainly doesn't seem to be serving justice to those who are truly wicked, is their thought. Uh, when I was in college, uh, I had the opportunity to travel to Italy with a choir and sing with them for a while. And I remember going to a public space, uh, viewing all the sites that were there, and then walking over to use the restroom. And uh, in Italy, you have to pay 
a euro to use the restroom because they, they assume in a public space this needs to be cleaned, people need to keep the supplies up and everything. But to me, the idea of paying to use the restroom seemed absurd. Uh, this is a basic human need. Why are we causing people to, to put out money for this? Uh, but I was in a different country. To me, this might have felt like an injustice, but in, when you're in Italy, this is not an injustice. This is the way things work. Right? This is only an injustice in my brain. So as soon as I came back to America, I could complain about it all day. But as long as I'm in Italy, I have no basis for my complaint about this. And Malachi here is trying to set the record straight. Right? It doesn't just happen that when you walk out the doors of the sanctuary or walk out the door of the temple or walk out of Sunday and into Monday that you're all of the sudden in a different country. Wherever you walk, you're in God's country, and you follow God's rules and his commands, and you don't get to question them, because he alone is the God of justice. But see, you and I fall into the same sort of echo chamber in our minds. We don't look at our own lives to see where we've gone wrong. We don't look at our history, and often we neglect to look at God's law and see what it is that he requires and what he's graciously done for us in the past. So when things get difficult, do we look inside our own lives and try to figure out what can we do? What can I do to fix this? What has been done to me? Or do we look outside of ourselves, look to the word of God, the only true and right standard? And are we shaken from our security? Because the Bible tells us how it is that we fulfill what God asks. And when we look to the word, we avoid mischaracterizing him. When we see his standards and we see his character, we are not going to say that God is not a God of justice or ask the question that the Israelites ask, where is the God of justice? Well, Malachi follows up that question with a response, and that second response is point number two, the God of justice is coming to judge the wicked. The God of justice is coming to judge the wicked. Malachi's response now, uh, he'd been preaching to the people in the previous passage, if you remember. He's now returning to uttering the very words that God is speaking, these seven questions to the people. They ask him, where is the God of justice? And God's answer in chapter 3, verse 1 is, behold, I send my messenger. Right? Uh, we, we sometimes uh, neglect because we see the word behold so often. It's, it's actually meant to sort of grab your eyes and focus your attention. It's almost like changing a camera angle uh, in the Old Testament, that you're supposed to now see through the eyes that are focused on this new thing. So it's almost like saying, look, I'm sending my messenger, or some commentators have even translated it, here I am. Where is this God of justice? You're looking at him. This is what God is saying. See, the people are commanded to turn their eyes and see the way that God is acting in the world. And to, uh, to see the way that God describes that he's sending the messenger who will prepare the way before him. Uh, and if that sounds familiar to you, right, we've heard that in Isaiah. And in fact, every one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all explicitly say that those words are referring to John the Baptist, who prepares the way for the coming of the messenger of the covenant. But we also see another messenger in this passage, not just John the Baptist who is to come, but the one for whom it is prepared. Look with me at verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, If you were in uh, the Ezekiel uh, study with me this last spring or uh, have looked at the Psalms, you know that there's a a Hebrew uh, thought pattern called a parallelism. That is that you say something two different ways in order to heighten the meaning of something. And this is actually what's happening in verse 1. God is not talking about two separate people who are coming. He says, behold, the Lord whom you seek, that is the God of justice you're looking for, will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. We're supposed to understand that these are the same person. The Lord who is going to come into his temple, because the people thought that God's not been here all along, and the messenger of the covenant, that great promise that God made with his people, with all the blessings and covenants uh, and curses of the covenant, he is coming. And so it's almost like the people are thinking, great, we're finally going to get our justice. They don't know how true that is. The scene is almost like, like two children who you've caught uh, disobeying, right? Disciplined, uh, perhaps, for fighting. You imagine uh, mom standing there and saying, Sammy, you can't bite your brother's ear for taking your toy. Uh, and you look over at Johnny, and he's just grinning ear to ear. I know he's going to get it, right? But then mom turns to Johnny and gives, deals out the same discipline. This is what's happening to Israel. They imagine every other nation is finally going to get it when the God of justice comes. But in fact, look down at the following verses, at verse 5. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me. We start reading that list, and we can agree with every one of those things, right? Yes, of course God should punish the sorcerers and the adulterers and the perjurers. Yes, God, come and deal with them. But by the time we get to the end of the list, you can imagine uh, that smile fading on Johnny's face. Wait, those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans and against those who turn away an alien. And the fact is, every sin will be under the scrutiny of God the great judge. God will be a swift witness against every single one of these from the liar and the sorcerer and the adulterer and the perjurer all the way down to even those who don't take care of the poor and needy in the way that we ought. As David says in Psalm 130, verse 3, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? We know that you and I, every one of us in this room has done something on that list and we will not escape judgment from this. So when we recognize that we've done any of these things, even in our hearts, we see that we're in trouble too. The punishment is coming. Look at four, chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. The day is coming when the wicked shall be consumed, and in fact, as we read in verse 4, turn to ash. The point here is not uh, some annihilationism that the wicked will all be destroyed in the last day and they'll never be treated again by God. He won't look at them. But the point is that uh, even the branch and the root will be destroyed. So much will the wicked be destroyed that you can't pick it up and graft it onto a new tree. You can't take the root and replant it elsewhere. Malachi is saying you don't get a second chance to live rightly before God. 
So if you are not following God's law and you find yourself on this list of sinners, as we each should, you should know that the plant will be gone if you do not turn. Examine your life right now because you don't get take two. Live according to the justice and righteousness and truth or be burnt up. But Malachi reminds us of our hope in this passage as well. God is not some cruel God of destruction, but he is truly the God of justice. So point three that Malachi has for the people is that the God of justice will save and bless the upright. The God of justice will save and bless the upright. So we've seen that this God of justice is coming to strike down those who walk in sin, but Malachi shows us he truly is a God of justice. If someone should not be struck down because they are living uprightly, then God will not strike them down. Look at verse 6 of chapter 3. God says after this long list of things, uh, these sins uh, of Israel and of Judah, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed. O sons of Jacob. God comes and he testifies against all their sin. Note that he didn't say, uh, I will come near to the world for judgment, but I will come near to you for judgment. He's going to testify against every sin of Israel, but he says that he does not change so they are not consumed. But shouldn't we expect that if God is a God of judgment, that where there is sin, he will punish it and he will destroy it? And the answer is yes and. God's unchanging covenant and his unchanging nature bind him to the love and grace that he showed even to Abraham. Genesis chapter 17 verse 7 shows us this promise being made to Israel. God says to Abraham, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. God is showing that he will keep his promise not to destroy his people, but to be their God and bless them. They deserve punishment for their sin, but God the Lord does not change, so the people are not destroyed. What a mercy and a grace to his people. And this salvation is only magnified when we look down at chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out And grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. The blessing of the covenant is that this shining righteousness will cover the earth with a healing sunshine. It'll produce leaping joy that knows no binding and no stillness. The righteousness and the blessing will produce marching fervor for God's kingdom as God's people go forth in triumph over God's enemies. And they accomplish this by remembering, verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb with, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. They need to live upright lives to see this happening. They need to live lives of faithfulness. But we know that Israel didn't start out this way, that you and I don't start out this way. We find ourselves on the list of sinners that we read before. But there is hope. There is what the Old Testament frequently calls a remnant. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. Uh, I'm sorry. 
some of them uh, have been following God's law, but many of the people have not. So in 10 through 12, we see this command from the Lord to live uprightly and faithfully. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not not be room enough to receive it. God here suggests, just put me to the test. And we might find this funny. We recall that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, one of his responses was to quote Deuteronomy 6.16, do not put the Lord your God to the test. But this is not the same thing that God is commanding the Israelites as what Jesus was rebuking Satan for before. In Jesus' case, he's commanding us not to test the Lord and see if he'll actually punish sin, right? which is what Israel seems to be convinced of about God. But instead... Malachi is proclaiming that we actually just do what God commands and see what he does after that. See what blessing there is for actually listening. It's almost like using reverse psychology on a child, right? Do that once more and see if I won't discipline you, right? God is saying, tithe to me once more and see if I won't bless you. Just do it. The problem is the people have been evading giving their tithes, giving God his due, I've been making excuses that locusts have eaten the crops and so they don't have enough to give or a drought has kept their fields from producing so they just don't have as much to give God and if they do, they won't have enough food for the whole year so we really can't give that to God right now. But God says, just follow my commands and do what I've asked you to do and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, verse 11, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field. God is going to rebuke the devourer, or the locust, another translation there. He'll open up the windows of heaven. That's actually the same phrase that God uses when he sends the flood for Noah in Genesis 7-11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. It's almost like God is saying, With the same measure of great destruction that I destroyed the world for all of its sin, if you would just turn to me and obey, I will in the same way pour out great blessings. I flooded the earth before to destroy wickedness, but I will flood the earth with rain and see your crops come in bounty. Just like I completely destroyed the earth for sin, I will flood your dry fields with water and flood your barns with blessing so that there will not be enough room for it. C.S. Lewis, uh, one of his less popular, uh, well, less well-known works, I should say, is his Space Trilogy. Uh, Three books, uh, analogies of what's going on in heaven and earth uh, as though it happened on different planets in our solar system. He penned, uh, in the second book, Paralandra, penned an analogy of the Garden of Eden and the temptation to eat of the forbidden fruit, as though the Garden of Eden happened on another planet. Instead of forbidding eating from a certain tree, God has, in this book, forbidden walking on the only fixed island or fixed land on the whole planet. Everything else is floating masses. And here, the main character offers a defense for God's law. And I'll quote, This man has said that the law against living on the fixed island is different from the other laws because it is not the same for all worlds and because we cannot see the goodness in it. And so far, he says, well. But then he says that it is thus different in order that you may disobey it. 
But there might be another reason. I think he made one law of that kind in order that there might be obedience. In all these other matters, what you call obeying him is but doing what seems good in your own eyes also. Is love content with that? You do them indeed because they are his will, but not only because they are his will. Where can you taste the joy of obeying unless he bids you do something for which his bidding is the only reason? And that is the beauty of following God's commands and finding the blessing that he gives to his people. But what about you? When you look at your life, are you making excuses for how you serve God? They may seem like valid excuses. If I tithe, I won't have enough income or food or money for the hard times because I lost my job recently or because we had to take a pay cut or whatever it may be. If I don't work on Sundays, then I won't have enough time to do everything else I should do later on in the week. Or if I don't tell the little white lie to my boss about the progress, then he won't trust me with more work later on or I may lose my job. Right? But but these are the things that God calls you to do just because they're right. And they may not seem to be a direct positive response on the other side, but we have to remember that obeying God is always a blessing for the sake of obeying God. We do these things because his bidding is the only reason. And we see that in verses 16 through 18, there are some, there is a remnant of those who do obey God. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, And the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, where it literally says my special treasure. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. There were people who obeyed. And God proves himself faithful. He says that these people will be written together Their names written together to remember how they feared the Lord and in what way they feared the Lord. And God's response is, they shall be mine. They shall be my treasured possession. He has a special blessing to give to his people who serve him faithfully. They are a precious treasure which God holds close to himself. Not because of their perfection, but because of their love and service. John Calvin, in commenting on this, says, A father is indulgent to his children. And though he may see a blemish in the body of his son, he will not cast him out of his house. Nay, though he may have a son lame or squint-eyed or singular for any other defect, he will yet pity him and will not cease to love him. So also is the case with respect to God, who, when he adopts us as his children, will forgive our sins. And as a father is pleased with every small attention when he sees his son submissive and does not require from him what he requires from a servant, so God acts. He repudiates not our obedience, however defective it may be. And God is so gracious to bless those who serve him in love, despite our imperfections. And his blessing creates a stark contrast in verse 18. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. On judgment day, all of God's people will be made wholly pure. And the contrast between the righteous and the wicked will be great. And the way that we come to that is Malachi's ultimate point, the the piece de resistance, if you will, of the whole book. The crowning jewel is that you must submit to Christ, 
who makes you pure and upright to see him, to serve him. In verse, uh, our fourth point, submit to Christ who makes you pure and upright to serve him. Look with me at the final two verses of the book. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. God is going to send one more prophet, one more final word to the people to turn from their ways, to repent and believe. And we know, as I mentioned before, that this is actually John the Baptist. You'll see in your outline, Matthew 11, 13 through 14, Christ himself says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. And this repentance is to turn the hearts of children to their fathers and the hearts of fathers to their children. He's, he's building up love in people's hearts again. But we know, even as we heard earlier this morning, that love is not everything there is to the gospel. There is a well-rounded gospel that we must turn to. And so we have to remember that John the Baptist is only preparing the way for the messenger of the covenant, who is the Lord himself. So we turn now to chapter 3, verses, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. Malachi asks, who can survive the day when the Lord appears in his temple with justice? Because there is fire and a fuller's soap, some say, or, or a launderer's soap, or, or lye, it may even say in yours. It's a very, very harsh chemical a chemical that will eat at and destroy anything wrong. And oftentimes we read this passage as though something terrible is coming to destroy, but look at that again. The fire is a refiner's fire. And it's a soap that is coming. These are not destructive things. They're cleansing and purifying things. God is going to melt away the impurities of your life and leave you as a precious metal, a treasured possession. He'll wash away the spot and the stain. Just like clothes go into the laundry dirty, they come out clean. This is the same thing that God is doing to your life when he appears, right? You will enter the laundry with the filthy rags of your own righteousness and you will exit the process dressed in the pure white linen of the Lord of justice. Verse 3 says, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier. The Son of God is coming to cleanse his covenant people. And God's purpose for you is that your life may draw near to him, serve him in love, and conform your life to his commands. Paul clarifies this in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. The desire for your life is that you would be putting away sin and seeking after righteousness and cleanliness. And look what the refiner is doing. He's sitting. God has not started salvation in your life in order to get up and walk away. He has begun a process that he will sit and he will tend to until it is complete. Refining metals in those days was actually often a two-step process. First, you would put the metal through the refiner's fire, and then you would put a harsh soap, lye, into it. 
And God is saying that this refining process that is in you will be perfect. It will be complete. And it will be done with every tool that God has to cleanse and purify you. So if you feel that God has walked away from your life and that you are no longer gaining victory over sin or your love for him is growing stagnant, then just remember this promise. Victory over sin in your life is not a losing battle. Paul continues this line of thought as we finish 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. In verse 4, we see what happens when the refiner works in our lives that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to Yahweh as in the days of old, as in former years. The refiner is working to ensure that your offering to God, your life, will be pleasing to him. And if you belong to him, you should know that God is preserving and carrying you through whatever trials you may be facing, through whatever difficulties, through whatever sluggishness of heart may be set upon you in this season, God is working in your heart to purify you and to bring you through to the last day. And on that last day, we must remember the promise that God makes in chapter 4. To you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves and trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this. One commentator, uh, C.F. Kyle, says this, and this is in your outline. Righteousness is here what it frequently is in Isaiah. Righteousness in its consequences and effects, the sun and substance of salvation. As the rays of the sun spread light and warmth over the earth for the growth and maturity of all the plants and living creatures, so will the sun of righteousness Bring the healing of all hurts and wounds which the power of darkness has inflicted upon the righteous. Then they will go forth from the holes and caves into which they had withdrawn during the night of suffering and where they had kept themselves concealed and skip like stalled calves which are driven from the stall to the pasture. Though the day of utter destruction is coming for those who do not turn to God, we must remember in the words of Hebrews, today is a day of salvation. Turn to him while it is still called today. John Owen is famously quoted uh, for saying, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So if you're here today and your life is not being changed or cleansed or purified, if you're not killing and putting away sin and unrighteousness in your life because of Christ and his purifying influence of the refiner, then know that it is not too late. Today is still called today. It's still your opportunity to turn to him, rest from your own view of right and wrong, and turn to trust in Christ, who alone can purify you. So whether you are here today and don't have a relationship with God, or you need one, and need one, I should say, or you are a Christian seeking to grow in living life according to true justice, the message upon your life is the same. Submit to the purifying work of Christ so that you may stand on Judgment Day. Let us pray. Our God, we thank you that in Christ we have 
the full picture of cleansing. Uh, For he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become your righteousness and your treasured possession, your own special people who are being refined so that we can offer a pleasing offering. Lord, we pray that as we live our lives, as we leave this building and go out into this world which is yours, that we would live out lives in pleasing worship, as pleasing ambassadors to you, and lives of true justice according to your word. Please shape us and transform us through the powerful work of Christ, uh, that we might honor and glorify you. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I'll turn with me now to Psalm 1a, a familiar psalm that uh, defines uh, what verses 16 through 18 of chapter 3 said, that there are righteous people and there are wicked people. And if we can turn to follow God's word and his ways by his grace, uh, may we be counted among the blessed men. Let's stand and sing.